Today on State Scoop's Priorities Podcast from Scoop News Group, the challenges and opportunities of decentralization. As we sit here today, the digital service is highly consultative and highly influential on programs that provide uh, constituent-facing technology, but we currently do not own, operate, or manage directly any constituent-facing technologies. Some might call it crazy. Others call it innovation. One of the things I really like making sure that people understand when I when I talk about my role is that it is one where I try and make sure crazy ideas don't happen and make sure that other crazy ideas do. New opportunities for state and local governments and law enforcement from crypto. A lot of people think about crypto as this digital platform, which is certainly true, but we also know that there are almost 35,000 cryptocurrency ATMs located in grocery stores and gas stations all across the United States. Really is something that these agencies need to be staying ahead of. Welcome to State Scoop's Priorities Podcast, brought to you today by Chainalysis. Every Thursday, you'll get insights into the state and local government technology community. You'll hear from top leaders across the state and local world. You'll learn about the latest news and trends ahead for the industry. I'm your host, Jake Williams. Here's what's happening this week. Several states with Democratic governors are launching websites that list out resources related to abortion services. The new sites are a direct response to the U.S. Supreme Court's decision to overturn federal protection for reproductive health services. California is most recently releasing abortion.ca.gov, which features information about abortions, legal rights, payment options, and clinics. Other states, like New York and Connecticut, have also released sites. Government technology startup incubator SIFSTART says 12 more companies are joining its fourth cohort of up-and-coming startups focused on government. The new cohort of companies will receive support and mentorship for two years, along with product and marketing support. And with the new addition, the cohort now has more than 50 total startups in their portfolio. Ransomware outfit Vice Society is claiming credit for a ransomware attack that hit the Los Angeles Unified School District. An actor affiliated with the gang confirmed to Data Breach today that it was behind the attack, but did not say if any student data had been stolen. Officials in the district say several information management systems were touched by the attack. You can read these stories and more at statescoop.com. You'll also find links in today's show notes. Florida is on its fourth reorganization of its information technology governance and operations in the last 15 years. James Grant, a former state legislator, is the state CIO and leads the Florida Digital Service. Since its inception in 2020, the Florida Digital Service is working with agencies to help modernize, all the while driving cybersecurity modernization statewide. Grant says he's on a mission to make sure the state finally delivers the secure and modern services that Floridians deserve. We've got a, a, a little bit of a sordid past. Uh, I, for one, as, as our state CIO and in charge of the Florida Digital Service, and quite frankly, grateful uh, for the fact that, that we get to start with kind of a blank canvas uh, and also a, a, a history of different approaches that maybe have been more uh, safe or slow or bureaucratic um, that, that all led to the demise of those particular offices. We have four times in the state of Florida defied the law of bureaucracy uh, often joked about, right, that if government creates something, that program will exist in perpetuity. And that's typically true. But but Florida has been so good at doing state technology bad in previous iterations that we've had the legislature or the executive move to abolish those offices four times prior. And so we at the Florida Digital Service uh, understand the stakes, understand the charge, the expectation of Governor DeSantis and the legislature to make sure that state technology is delivering the value. Uh, both inside uh, government as well as externally to our constituents. And so that's really where the, the Florida Digital Service comes to play. But 
when you, you ask yourself kind of what does it take to defy the law of bureaucracy or how do you calculate the price of not getting state technology right, looking at just one category of projects, those are projects in excess of $10 million, which are projects that we at the Florida Digital Service and some of our, our predecessors were responsible for doing project oversight on. From 2005 to 2020, there were five agency projects that were projects larger than $10 million uh, that were so off the mark uh, in the eyes of the legislature that the legislature actually quit funding and canceled those projects, resulting in $157.5 million almost of funds that were spent on something that never actually came to fruition. And then similarly, there were seven projects uh, in that same category, $10 million or more, uh, that were so over budget that we spent $327.5 million more than was ever anticipated to be spent on those projects uh, at the jump. And then when you kind of enter into where security plays a role and in, in what legacy systems can mean, both for inefficient, system, uh, inefficient services, uh, either to the employees using those systems to deliver services in government or the constituent that's receiving services from government. Uh, according to the FBI, we were actually fourth, unfortunately. Uh, a lot of times you want to rank highly in, in rankings. Uh, $295 million in cyber crimes in the state as a whole just shows you how large the economic impact is, both public and private sector. Now, that's not $295 million of government cost uh, to, to those cyber crimes specifically, but, but a large number of those cyber crimes actually do involve government services um, or could be mitigated by government services. And so I want to take just a minute or so to talk about the Florida Digital Service for those of you who are not familiar with kind of what we are and what we're not. Um, but we were established in 2020 as kind of the, the latest iteration uh, to try and get an, an entity fully responsible for state technology is, as I like to say, um, you know, one throat to choke. Uh, and having been a, a recovering uh, legislator that spent about a decade working on technology policy, the Florida Digital Service was really kind of the first year of about three years of, of planned reforms to look at what it really looks like to have one throat to choke with a clearly uh, defined mission and empowered but also accountable organization. And so uh, the digital service was created in 2020. Uh, we were charged with creating innovation, innovative solutions that securely modernize state government. We partner with all state agencies to lead state technology in the future, but one common misconception, and it's a, a real challenge sometimes to manage the calendar. As we sit here today, the digital service is highly consultative and highly influential on programs that provide uh, constituent facing technology, but we currently do not own, operate, or manage directly any constituent facing technologies. Uh, and then following the, the, the establishment in 2021, we were actually designated the lead entity on cybersecurity in 2021, uh, responsible for a whole host of, of cybersecurity responsibilities. As we walk through, I'm, I'm going to use cybersecurity a little bit, both as a parallel, because I think it's fundamental to modernization, uh, but also as an example, as, as we in Florida move on more than about $175 million in application modernization funding that, uh, that just went into law with the turn of the fiscal uh, this past July 1. Modernization takes a lot. Um, but at the simplest level, it takes policy and it takes money. The policy being kind of the authority, uh, the, the accountability, the responsibility that sets the stage in government to say who's responsible for what uh, is something actually uh, a deliverable. Uh, and then obviously the money to, to kind of make it work, right? So uh, if we're to look just kind of at the digital service in general and what our role in modernization policy looks like, uh, number one, we have to establish and operate, as I mentioned, Florida's first CSOC to to actually run uh, enterprise cybersecurity across all of state government 
And as of this past legislative session, through $30 million in grant funding, we'll touch on in a second, actually run cybersecurity uh, in coordination with local government as well. So really understanding uh, what it looks like to secure the entire enterprise and understanding that the threat actor doesn't care about branches of government or separations of power or any other uh, wholly appropriate and, and, and really important constitutional uh, protections uh, that, that, that exist to protect our constituents and to separate and, and limit government's ability to take over and control certain things. Uh, our job, as I tell people, is to make sure that innovation uh, fits within the Constitution, not to try and change the Constitution, uh, but it's really encouraging to see local government reaching out, state government reaching out to say, hey, we're in this boat together. And, and so how do we work as a team and maintain those either separations of power between the executive, the legislative, and the judicial, or just levels of government, Florida, uh, recognizing sovereign constitutional officers at the local government level that don't really have to play with us and could say no. Um, but we're, we're really seeing a lot of lean in there. So that's one of our statutory responsibilities that lays a huge predicate. Uh, and we'll dive into the example. I'm going to use that as an example because it really does touch on the pathway to, to modernization. You know, one thing maybe to, to point out that, that I should have talked about um, at the jump, but is a, is a key component of the pathway to modernization is understand the ecosystem that you're in. And, and in Florida, we are a heavily decentralized model. So I know some of my other peers around the country have a very authoritative, um, almost, you know, I joke, there's monarchs, there's oligarchs, there's anarchy. We're, we're trying to build a center of, of excellence, right? That, that says, you know, we're not going to be a, a super centralized thing. It's just not what we are in Florida. And it's quite frankly, not what, what I want the digital service to be. Um, we're also not going to be anarchy with no standards. I think our recipe, uh, our pathway is the right recipe for the org chart of state government in Florida, the different dynamics, the different governance structures and the like. What I would encourage uh, anybody to, to, to do that's kind of looking to say, hey, how do I take what's worked in Florida over the last two years to go from you know, a perennial loser uh, to, uh, on, on the state technology front to a state that's starting to, I think, quite frankly, lead the way in a lot of ways, it's to understand the ecosystem you're in. So looking at those policy powers and authorities to say, how do I use those to set the stage and get the value demonstrated that I need to, to, to go from, okay, is this thing viable? Is the, is the digital services startup and government viable? And, and I think having passed the viability test, now it's, hey, how do I scale? And so looking at, you know, additional funds, but also processes to make sure that everything we're doing is repeatable and scalable. When we look at what's happened over the last couple of years, uh, this is uh, just a high level of uh, what I would call modernization funding. So I mentioned cybersecurity funding being a key part of modernization in, in our playbook. Um, you, you look at really two different buckets of, of money. There's $85.5 million just to the digital service uh, before you count $37 million that's running through one of our universities and a cyber institute there to do statewide training as well as risk assessment focused on critical infrastructure. And then in addition to that, there's more than $173 million to look at app modernization and, and cloud migration. Um, the $163 million is, is specifically focused on retiring legacy systems as well as, as migrating off of uh, antiquated and, and oftentimes end of life or unsupported hardware and software in an on-premise environment. Uh, to, to a cloud, uh, as well as $10 million to move existing workloads right now, not necessarily uh, at mod and then migrate. Uh, so that's just a high level of kind of the, the money and the funding here in the state of Florida. I'm going to kind of transition to design and I'm going to use the CSOC as a design. 
I, I talked about kind of understanding your ecosystem, understanding your chessboard, uh, but I kind of sum up design of, of programs into really three choices. And, and there's pros and cons to both. Uh, there are assets and liabilities to every skill set, every, every entity, everything, uh, as well as every concept. And so, uh, you know, we looked at the CSOC and, and had a blank canvas, uh, I think kind of uniquely in money had no operation, not a lot of uh, process and policy and procedure in place, but, but, a, but a healthy uh, investment of funding. And so in looking at that blank canvas, we said, okay, you could build with a single stack. In this case, we could look at a single cloud vendor or a single cybersecurity vendor. Like I said, this is, this is just to use the SOC as, as an example, but if we were to look at cloud and say, you know, we could go single cloud, we could go multi-cloud. We could look at our modernization strategy and say, hey, single dev shop, it's going to be internal to government, or uh, we could facilitate a large number of outsourced DevOps shops to come in and, and help do. Uh, we could also go buy uh, commercial off the shelf. And so in looking at that, you know, if we really kind of sum it up, there's single stack or, or single source, uh, which is to say, hey, I'm going to go find one vendor to either give me everything off the shelf or to, to, to do one vendor in a SaaS buy. Um, the, the, the pro is it's a, it's a little faster. It's a little easier. You know, you don't necessarily have some of the integration challenges. Um, it's one throat to choke on just the, the simple delivery process. Uh, but there's also downsides. And those downsides are that I'm, I'm not getting to take the best of a number of different products that I am kind of married uh, in that relationship. You know, you, you make a, a, a decision to launch a state stock with, with either option one or number two. And that's like a marriage with kids. They don't, they don't break up and separate very easily. Uh, just because of the, the complete codependence uh, that, that happens there. And so uh, th this new trend of systems integrators has shown up, I think, over you know, the last five, six, seven years, really gaining prominence where not necessarily picking a single stack on technology, but a single systems integrator where I outsource the vendor to, to do the integration and, and technology decision-making uh, and, and maybe even implementation operations and reporting. And so it's, it's kind of like a, a co-pilot model that I know uh, Jake, a lot of your audience is familiar with. Number three, I think, you know, quite frankly, doesn't happen very often in government because you kind of have to be a little bit crazy and, and uh, a little bit risk obsessive uh, to take the risk involved with number three. Uh, the risk involved with number three is that you look like a complete moron, uh, that you get it all wrong. The upside, the asset to number three is it's a federated and decentralized model that says, hey, if I have a, a hub uh, for whatever the thing is, in this case, the SOC, but if I have a, a hub uh, that can run that federated model uh, to support a, a multi-vendor and vendor agnostic approach that says, hey, look, you can run different systems, different solutions, uh, and different processes, as long as the center of excellence is kind of the end destination. And, and ultimately, we picked number three uh, for the CSOC. For those of you looking at how we would approach cloud, you can probably assume pretty, pretty strongly that we're going to be a multi-cloud state. Um, and, and we're fortunate that we, we have a, a blank canvas on that front as well. But for the same reasons that kind of articulated here that we looked at building the SOC out with a multi-vendor and Vigner agnostic approach, we, we wanted to establish a single point of ingestion, translation and access for what that thing is, right? There, there needs to be one home base or one hub uh, that the spokes can, can run off of. But, but if you can get that right, then you get the upside of, of avoiding becoming completely dependent on a single vendor uh, you get the upside of uh, providing access to a host of tools in the in the SOC world, and I'll touch on function here in a second. But you know, I don't want to be in a in a situation where I'm saying that the state's endpoint solution is 
you know, Sentinel One, CrowdStrike, Carbon Black, EFA, uh, you know, Defender, uh, or, or anything else. I, I want to be able to look at it and say, hey, for the agencies or entities that have already invested in five, six, seven different uh, very, um, very competent functions, solutions, processes, or teams, I don't want to come to you until you rip that out, start over. I need, to, I need to meet you where you are and give you an experience that says, hey, you've invested in, we're not going to pick one winner. We're going to support the, the, the marketplace approach in the ecosystem. And so by not requiring the agencies to adopt single technology stacks, one of the things that I think is really important for those of us that have to manage an ecosystem of agencies is, you know, good management is rewarding good behavior and discouraging bad behavior. Well, I have five different endpoint solutions, let's say EDRs in, in play across state government. And then I have a lot of agencies who haven't even begun doing endpoint. If we show up and say, hey, you have to rip out the one you have, then we're, we're probably not rewarding good behavior where people were moving on their own prior to enterprise security. And, and we're kind of rewarding bad behavior for folks to get to go up and, and look like the, 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 the leader of the class because they can turn on right away having done nothing previously. And so uh, that we think is a, a big thing uh, to, to, to look at. And then I think the last thing I would stress when we look at topics like modernization um, is, is focus on function, not logo. Focus on uh, the job that you're hiring, um, the, the company or the application or the solution or the service to do. And so I use this as, as examples, uh, but this is where I think, um, you know, Asset discovery, excuse me, this is where I think cybersecurity and the, the application modernization, um, and, and forgive me from coming uh, from, from, from just uh, this background, but, but if I'm a head coach of a football team, uh, the cybersecurity function, my CISO is my defensive coordinator. Their job is to make sure that, that, that the bad guys don't put points on the board against us. The modernization side is my offensive coordinator. Their job is to go put points on the board. But if those two coordinators aren't working well together and leveraging what they're seeing from, from their different vantage points and using the same assets uh, for, to, to fit their needs, then we have a problem. And in Florida, we've invested heavily in enterprise cybersecurity. We're going to look at some of these functions, but you can very quickly start to go, wait a minute, how do I do real modernization if I haven't done asset discovery and data catalog? If I don't know where the data is, how can I possibly do meaningful application modernization um, really, all I'm going to do is, is write the same mainframe application. I'm just going to eliminate COBOL, and I'm going to take all of the functions of that mainframe system and just take it to a modernized language in a modernized hosting environment and, and probably not do a lot other than spend a lot more money than needed to to actually retire certain functions that might be 50, 60 years old that are no longer relevant. So understanding what assets I have, uh, whether that be on the hardware front, uh, whether that be the client side, server side, whether it be network side or the actual data traversing uh, throughout the ecosystem, discovering the assets and the inventory is in my belief, the most critical pathway to understand you know, what's on the chessboard. The way I like to think of it is each of those assets are a different Lego piece that in and, in and of their own right might be significant, but don't really build much, but put together can build something uh, pretty, pretty special. I hope that that gives just a little bit of an overview of of kind of how we're looking at things. Um, there's a whole host of projects across state government. For those of you that are looking to say, hey, how do I take advantage of the funding that's out there on, 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 uh, on the application modernization uh, piece? One thing I would say is I'm highly consultative. Our team is highly consultative. 
um, but really focus on the agency functions. And so get in front of the agencies that have needs to modernize, to present them with, hey, look, here's what it would look like. And, and, and even run a proof of concept to scan the environment and say, hey, here's things that, here's workloads that could go to the cloud, but here's also a pathway to modernizing and retiring. You know, uh, uh, we have one system that generates a half a billion dollars of revenue for the state that, that is in critical need. Uh, for example, of, of, uh, of, of a refresh. And so getting in front of the agencies at the executive level, uh, both with the, the secretaries, the chiefs of staff and the deputy secretaries that are kind of the business uh, or operators uh, leadership, operational leadership or business leadership, but, but simultaneously the, the CIOs as well. And then certainly coordinate with us where, where we can be helpful. At the end of the day, whether it's security, modernization, uh, retiring legacy systems, uh, data privacy, all of these kind of once in a generation tasks that we have in front of us, it's going to take all of us. James Grant in an edited segment from his keynote at State Scoop and Ed Scoop's IT Modernization Summit. You can read more about him and Florida's modernization journey at statescoop.com and in links in today's show notes. You can also see the full version of his remarks in those links too. Today's episode is brought to you by Chainalysis. Chainalysis demystifies cryptocurrency with industry-leading blockchain analysis and investigation support to state and local government agencies. Chainalysis traces crypto funds from ransomware attacks, drug trafficking, darknet markets, and so much more. Visit chainalysis.com slash the state scoop to learn more. The smart cities movement is entering a new phase as the world emerges from the changes brought on by the coronavirus pandemic. One thing that has not changed, though, is the role of public infrastructure and how cities embrace that idea of smart. Miguel Sangalang is a former deputy mayor of Los Angeles. He's now the executive director of the city's Street Lighting Bureau. He tells me how light poles play a role in smart cities. It's a little bit different from uh, the previous role I'm going into this one, uh, although very interestingly enough, you know, the title executive director for Bureau of Street Lighting um, and the role I see for myself are uh, probably a little bit um, further apart than one might expect. So um, obviously very singular kind of uh, when you talk about the agency itself, but one of the things I really like making sure that people understand when I, when I talk about my role is that it is uh, one where I try and make sure crazy ideas don't happen and make sure that other crazy ideas do. Um, and you know, from, from the history of the Bureau itself, I think it's been one where uh, it has really embraced kind of innovation from its very beginning, right? Like when when Los Angeles was a small Pueblo, uh, 12,500 people uh, looking to try and compare itself to the likes of New York and Edison back then, or late 1800s, it actually contracted for, for things called mood lights, right? They were, they were arc lighting 150 feet in the air, and, and it was nicknamed because it looked like it was a moonlight that was flooding Los Angeles 100 years later. Um, uh, fast forward 100 years later, I mean, uh, you know, we've built out a system of 220,000 street lights throughout the, the city of Los Angeles, 400 uh, different types of aesthetics and designs. Um, it's connected by an underground network of about 9,000 miles of pipes um, with about 27,000 miles of copper uh, that are connected to obviously service points to our, to our uh, water and power system. Uh, but but it's a it's a pervasive system that that covers two thirds of the city, right? Um, and and is something that we really see as part of a platform uh, for many other kind of enabling features or technologies. I mean, uh, I joke with our uh, with one of my colleagues at the convention center, right? That you know they, they might have a really good party pad, but we're the original kings of nightlife, <laughs> and we're going to have lots of bells and whistles. That's actually going to make it a lot more fun, much more livable. Um, and sustainable future for Los Angeles.
obviously by their very nature, you know, lights and lighting are, are to some degree technology, but tell me a little bit more about maybe how these pieces sort of interface with some of the smart initiatives that are underway in the city and, and, and even more into the, you know, the networking and technology side of city operations. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll point to something that I think is a little bit of old history now, because it's one of the things that the beer has done uh, very early on. And that was in, uh, you know, 2009, 2010, we were one of the first cities to adopt uh, LED, um, LED fixtures for, for our streetlights, right? So moving away from um, high intensity discharge um, uh, fixtures to LED, lowering our total cost of uh, greenhouse gas emissions, plus, uh, you know, saving a few few dollars here and there. Um, you know, that, that I, th- I think that's one of the pivot points because from that point on, there's no instance in the, the Bureau's future where I'm actually going to buy something without a semiconductor, in, right? So literally, I will, I will be dependent on those technologies because of LEDs. Um, and then from, from the savings that we were able to generate on the energy side, um, we actually freed enough space uh, into our, our street lighting network to adopt uh, other technologies like EV chargers. Um, like air quality sensors, right? Um, pedestrian encounters. Uh, so lots of different things that, that with, you know, the mind of improving how we actually operate um, allowed for other things to grow. Uh, very specifically, we're, we're proud of our EV charger uh, program because, um, you know, this year we actually uh, placed our 500th uh, publicly available EV charger that's publicly available in the right of way and, and we think that's a real strategy for us to help with adoption in the long term uh, for a multitude of reasons, right? Uh, one, this is uh, equitable access, right? Everyone can, can access it from the, the, the public right of way. Two, we're able to target uh, multifamily homes or areas with multifamily homes uh, to make sure they have access to these types of technologies. And ultimately, with California selling its millionth EV last year, um, nearly a quarter of a million sales in, in 2021 alone, you know, we, we see greater adoption uh, for, for that technology, that electrified transportation technology, um, not only for new, uh, but for secondary markets. So in a few years, uh, you'll see more affordable EVs going on uh, the secondary markets, um, some of which will make them, or I think uh, presumingly say, uh, many that will make it into our uh, multifamily residential where it will be harder um, without our infrastructure to actually help them charge. So lots of places, not only from a sustainability standpoint, uh, resiliency standpoint, but also an equity standpoint. What are some of those other areas where you're looking at the infrastructure that you already have established to, to improve equity in the city and, and to sort of drive some of those solutions home for those folks? A, a few other come to mind, you know, a couple stemming from, from the, um, the pandemic, kind of. If you look at digital divide, and issues around the digital divide, you know, it's very interesting. Again, I, I talked about how our infrastructure had been built over 100 years. We, we actually built up a very valuable neighborhood asset because we have three things that really matter when we're, we're trying to deploy technology. That's poles, pipes, and power, right? So, so with those three things, we have, again, a foundation to try and approach things in a different way. So one of the things that we had moved into was looking at whether we can actually partner with our other jurisdictions like our, our, our school district, um, our, our county jurisdictions to see if there's 
ways that we can use some of our shared assets and infrastructure to kind of use a, you know, for lack of a better term right now, uh, an anchor from which we can kind of cast, cast the, the net out of from our streetlights, right? So we're looking at a couple pilot neighborhoods, specifically Boyle Heights, um, where we're using uh, a school as an anchor point uh, to, to then uh, connect to our streetlights and, and hopefully broadcast internet for, for the students to be able to do their homework. So, you know, that's, that's one example. I think there's a couple others when you're looking at uh, making sure we're improving pedestrian safety. Uh, we've also adapted some of these technologies to actually brighten some of our lights. So we have a program called tra Transitional Lighting Zones, right? Where we, we increase the, the, uh, the lumens for some of the areas that are just ending with uh, special events or other things uh, so that uh, the area is much more visible, right? And then obviously come, uh, bring it back down post the event. But some of those that, that try and make some of these crosswalks, neighborhoods, uh, a little bit more livable, sustainable, and safe. Let's talk a little bit more about, you know, the, the a project like uh, like you were talking about of using the school district as an anchor to to broadcast Internet out to communities. I mean, you know, uh, even in a city like Los Angeles, there there the digital divide still is incredibly present. How do you see philosophically sort of L.A. Lights rule, uh, role in helping people get access? And, and what are some other projects that you're you're sort of using again, using that infrastructure to help drive some of that that access? This is this is where we have you know for several years now, uh, in partnership with you know the, the telecom industry and others, um, you know accelerated things like co-location. That's a program where where we uh, help uh, essentially permit and and attach uh, and build out 5G networks that are from our telecom providers, right? So uh, in a matter of uh, three years, from 2017 to around 2020. You know, we we're able to increase our uh, permitting about 2,600%, right? So that that actually helped us become one of the first 5G cities in America, um, and and uh, is is helping kind of enable some of those then uh, other solutions such as hotspots, et cetera, that was was deployed during uh, during the pandemic. Uh, so you know, using us as a basis from which others can catapult from. Uh, is is I think one of our kind of larger strategies. Um, also understanding our our core competency, right? Um, as you said, yes, we're we're not an ISP. Um, there's there's other people that that clearly have competencies and strengths in that realm. Uh, but I think the city has a a competitive advantage. We we build infrastructure, right? That lasts 20, 30 years, and it could be multi-purpose. Again, going back to the fact that that we have lighting infrastructure that is just a neighborhood asset placed there over the course of time with with billions of dollars of investment that uh, that is ready to be a platform for other things. So we'll continue to kind of refresh that, um, adopt for our own purposes for the delivery of uh, um, you know for for delivery of street lighting services in addition to other city services. Right. So um, there are other aspects um, that will help with then um, enabling other services to happen. Yeah, and one of the other things you talked about uh, were things like air quality sensors uh, on your, your infrastructure. I mean, what's the, uh, what do some of those projects look like? What are some of the efforts that you have underway there? Not just air quality maybe, but sensors in general. I mean, how are you using that infrastructure as a platform for sensors? Some of the things that we're, we're testing out right now, I mean, for, for California and Los Angeles very specifically, right? You know, had had a history of, of being a smog capital, but now has reduced that significantly. 
Um, we, we are using air quality sensors to try and figure out kind of low, uh, local air quality um, conditions that, that will help policymaking. So we've actually partnered um, with NASA um, and our, our local Cal State universities on a project that we're calling um, uh, uh, predicting the air we breathe. So we're, we're attaching and, and working with, again, the school districts um, and, and our sensors that we deploy um, with the college jurisdictions and NASA, mashing all that satellite information up to all the, the things that would be on local ground to help model some of these things. Now, it's very nascent, very new for us, um, but we see promise in trying to help with, with issues. I mean, think about forced uh, different wildfires that California has faced, right? Other, other situations where air quality might be poor, we'd be able to give more localized information to, to people at that point. Um, and I think this goes well, well in hand with some of the other initiatives that, that Jake and I talked about before. You know, we've, we've um, rolled out the Angelino Connect, which is the, the universal kind of access to the city of Los Angeles. Um, we've built that out to be part of the platform for how people might interact with our, our, our uh, newly launched uh, um, LA ramp. That's our new business portal where it actually takes all of the different types of uh, procurement uh, procurements that the city of Los Angeles, as well as others, private institutions, even the county, are looking to put out there for, for small business to get to. Uh, but then adding that to other information that might be coming out that might be of interest from, you know, recreation and parks or, or the library for us, right? Or any of the services that are direct aid that, that was very vital during the pandemic. So looking to mash up some of that kind of generated information on the ground from these different uh, uh, you know, technologies that we've deployed uh, to then giving it to the people in, in the way that they might be able to consume and use in, the, in a way that would benefit their daily lives. You're going to be one of the speakers at the Smart City Expo uh, USA in Miami. Uh, what should we expect from you for that event? Uh, what, what, are, what are you bringing to the table? What are you bringing uh, to, to talk about? And what are you hoping to get from your, your peers across the community? The, the, the object of Smart City is not to be just smart. It's actually, it's the best kind of dependent clause or sub bullet, if you will. It's, it's sustainable in a smart way. It's equitable in a smart way. And, and Ari's really bringing that. Um, for, from Los Angeles, I think what, what you'll see is how, how we're doing it in, in a way that is, I think, fairly collaborative, working across different jurisdictions uh, between intra-departmental to inter-departmental outside into the county and state, right? Um, you'll see you'll see a few um, I think uh, uh, forward-looking adoptions, um, lots of different pilots, including ones that I haven't mentioned right now. It's Code the Curb, where we're looking at real-time code code side management, working with our Department of Transportation. So lots of really cool um, pilots that are going through. I think what I'm looking for is to see those as well from other cities, because uh, no no one person has all the right ideas. Um, and it's going to be a, a multitude of per permutations to actually solve some of these larger problems that we're doing. One of the things that is, I think, most intriguing about the role now is the fact that we're taking something old and making it new. And it's been something that was looked at as, as a very specific single use. I mean, just the title alone, right? It's a streetlight. Uh, but then if you actually take a step back and realize what all of it is, Right, it's it's really a larger investment in a neighborhood asset that is close to home for many people, um, and, and it will be an enabling piece of infrastructure. And I think that's where, uh, you know, as as we start thinking about uh, larger kind of infrastructure builds, 
um, either stormwater or roads, bridges, right? And kind of thinking and seeing how all those pieces interconnect, right? Not only sustainability, um, but also equity and also in a way that can, can make it more digitally accessible. Um, those types of planning will become even more important because of the different ways that people will interact with the right of way in public space now. Miguel Sangalang, Executive Director of the Los Angeles Bureau of Street Lighting. You can read more about him and Smart Cities at statescoop.com and in links in today's show notes. He also spoke this week at the Smart City Expo USA conference in Miami. You can find coverage from that event in those links as well. I'm Jake Williams, host of State Scoop's Priorities Podcast. Next week on the show, San Jose's Chief Innovation Officer, Clay Garner, returns to talk about the role of innovation in modernization. You can subscribe to the podcast at PrioritiesPodcast.com and wherever you get your podcasts. Cryptocurrency has ushered in a new way for consumers and businesses to transfer value that is safe, transparent, and equalizing. That's presenting new challenges, but also new opportunities for state and local governments and law enforcement agencies. Chainalysis is an active player in this space. They're the sponsor of today's episode. The company's director for state and local government, Kat Fadley, tells Scoop News Group's Wyatt Cash why government agencies need to pay more attention to the crypto trend. There are a couple of key reasons. The first is that the global uh, crypto transaction volume has reached all-time highs last year at about $16 trillion. And that's an incredible amount of uh, money moving around the system. And with that, state and local government agencies need to make sure that they're paying attention to help protect consumers and their jurisdictions. It's also an opportunity for these governments to attract new businesses to their jurisdictions with crypto businesses booming. And so it's really an economic development opportunity for governors and mayors as well. That's interesting. So it sounds like cryptocurrencies present opportunities for economic development, as well as new avenues, though, for fraud and abuse, right? So to talk a little, if you would, about the inherent chain of data associated with cryptocurrencies, why that's important and how that can help state and local authorities on both fronts. Yeah, so there's this really common misconception that cryptocurrency transaction data is anonymous. And in fact, it's, it's just the opposite. All of those transactions are recorded on a public blockchain ledger. It's essentially a record of transactions. So unlike traditional fiat currency like cash, cryptocurrency really presents state and local governments with this incredible opportunity. Regulators or law enforcement agencies can look at the blockchain and they can actually trace those transactions to better understand where funds are going And if there's any potentially risky activity or illicit activity associated with those transactions, that really doesn't exist um, in our traditional financial system to the same extent as it does with cryptocurrency. So, Kat, one of the questions that I think is in the minds of many authorities is individuals can mask their identities, use phantom IP addresses, et cetera. So even if you have a public ledger, how do you go about finding the identity for some of this criminal activity? That's a really great question. So what Chainalysis is doing is we are providing attribution of cryptocurrency wallets to their known services. And what I mean by that is there are a lot of uh, organizations or businesses that are facilitating the majority of this transactional volume. An example of that would be a cryptocurrency exchange where you or I could open up an account, connect our bank account, 
and then buy essentially cryptocurrency with our cash in our bank account. So that's a very common type of example of an organization that's facilitating these transactions. The way that you're able to get attribution is in tracing the flow of funds, ideally to a point of destination or origination like that crypto exchange. And the reason for this is because the ones that operate in the United States are U.S. compliant. And with that, they're collecting important know your customer information about the folks who open up accounts on their platforms. So with that, you know, if a law enforcement agency is able to trace funds and identify that they've gone to a given cryptocurrency exchange, that agency can then contact that company and say, hey, with legal process, can you tell us the identity of that account holder? That's a very common workflow that we see that's been really successful in helping to identify criminals or scammers that are taking funds from victims. And eventually they want to cash out their crypto at one of these exchange type businesses. So there's still a lot of debate on how federal authorities plan to regulate cryptocurrencies. So tell us a little about why should state and local authorities be thinking ahead about them at this point? It really comes back to the consumers in these jurisdictions, right? So state and local governments have to care about what's happening to their constituents. And at the end of the day, all crime has a local nexus, meaning it would happen in these states and local government areas. So really, these agencies need to be thinking about how to protect their citizens, how from a reputational perspective as well, they can be perceived to being ahead of the curve as it relates to cryptocurrency. The other aspect is these tools, especially for law enforcement, can be used to help consumers recover stolen funds or even disrupt any type of criminal activity that might be taking place in their jurisdiction. In addition, state and local agencies can also potentially recover stolen funds from victims, as well as seize criminal assets from cryptocurrency cases as a way to almost self-fund their agencies. And finally, the other thing is a lot of people think about crypto as this digital platform, which is certainly true, but we also know that there are almost 35,000 cryptocurrency ATMs which are physical devices located in grocery stores and gas stations all across the United States. So a lot of people have access to cryptocurrency in a way that maybe governments aren't thinking about. And for that reason, really is something that uh, these agencies need to be staying ahead of. That's a very interesting measure of the progress cryptocurrencies have made. Back to the state and local authority questions. Given the rather technical nature of blockchain, what are your recommendations on how state and local authorities should get prepared for the growing presence of cryptocurrencies and the technology requirements that they may need to consider? I think the biggest thing is the educational piece. You know, this is a new technology and it might seem a little bit scary to new agencies looking at it, but there are a lot of great resources out there to help get you that foundational understanding of what cryptocurrency is, what is a blockchain, and what does that really mean? Uh, here at Chainalysis, we have a series of really excellent trainings and certifications. One to highlight is our cryptocurrency fundamentals course. The other aspect is the tools. So because cryptocurrency is public information, Anyone can view those transactions using a public blockchain explorer. 
So you can literally Google public blockchain explorer and start to poke around and look at what these transactions are. That can start to get you that exposure and familiarity with cryptocurrency. Then if you want to take it to the next level, there are a variety of blockchain analysis tools that can help you do the deeper tracing of cryptocurrencies, especially as it relates to a consumer complaint around a scam or fraud. And that's really where chain analysis can help state and local agencies get equipped to do these types of investigations and consumer complaints. Are there any examples of cities or states that you know have moved forward in this direction that you can talk about? Yeah, so what's really interesting is uh, a lot of things that are happening at the city level, both in Miami and New York. So Mayor Suarez has been very vocal about trying to bring in crypto businesses and taking a paycheck in crypto. We've heard similar things in the city of New York as well. And then in terms of our customers, uh, we work with state and local government agencies across the United States. I would just add that there's a lot of opportunity with cryptocurrency. It really helps to bring in more uh, innovation on the financial system, as well as inclusion, given sort of the lower barriers to entry. But with that, there's a responsibility that state and local governments have to take to continue protecting their consumers and constituents. Uh, and so while cryptocurrency has these opportunities and challenges, there's definitely a lot of great things that can happen with it. Kat Faley, Director for State and Local Government at Chainalysis. You can read more about her and cryptocurrency at statescoop.com and in links in today's show notes. The Priorities Podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts. If you haven't already, please leave a review or a rating on the podcast page. They make it more likely that more people will find the show. This podcast is a production of Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney and Carlin Fisher helped put it together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. Until next week, I'm your host, Jake Williams. Thanks for listening.